0: So uh, my wife and I, when we were dating back in college, uh, there was a moment in our relationship where I had promised her something that I would go and visit her family uh, on, th- on, on Thanksgiving. We'd been dating for a while. Uh, I pretty much knew at this point, like, okay, this woman I'm going to marry and like, all right, let's go meet the whole family uh, and really get to know them. They can really get to know me. Let's head in that direction. And while we were dating, uh, I I sought counsel from a lot of people because I had no idea what I was doing. I wanted to do things right, and so I decided, okay, I'm going to get a lot of different voices here to, to help me understand this. And I learned something real quick, is that not every voice is equal. Some voices are very wise and smart and experienced, and some voices are dumb, and you should not pay attention to the dumb voice. And so uh, I, I talked to my friend one day and he was just like, man, like, I just don't think that's a good idea. You don't need to be going off off like that or whatever. And so and I was like, okay, like clearly he sees something that I'm not seeing. And so I asked him, he's like, I don't know, it just feels weird. Okay, that's not super compelling, but I was like, you know what, like, I trust you, you love me, you're my friend, so, and, uh, so I'm not gonna do that. Now, mind you, this is the day before we were, I was supposed to leave to go visit her family. She was already in, in, uh, back home with them, whatever. So I called her later that day and was like, hey, just so you know, I'm not coming. And as you can imagine, that went over great. Uh, She was very embarrassed. She was like, my family thinks you're coming and you're telling me it caused a big, a big rift. And so I was like, oh, I don't know what to do now. So I called my mentor at the time who had been married for quite some time and said, hey, this is the situation I'm in and I really don't know what to do. I'm so confused. And he was like, well, you, did you say you were going? i was like, yeah. He goes, let your yes be yes and your no be no. He said, is there any reason not to? I'm like, no, like I can't think of any reason. And so, and so he, he wisely was like, you need to go, ignore your dumb friend, uh, you know, just, just don't worry about that. So I decided to go and learned that some words need to be heated and some words need to be ignored. And my friend's advice wasn't particularly helpful in this moment. And so, but what we see in today's text is that it's not just that not all words are helpful, Some words are patently evil, wicked. And yet those are the words that we find to be the most attractive so often. They're so deceptive. And we tend to exalt evil words over the good word. And so the first thing we wanna see today is that we must know God's word because the tempter will twist it. Verse one, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. So we have a crafty serpent ser- Serpent. that's a beast of the field uh, that, the, that God had made. And so this was a created being, a serpent, a snake, is something that was not equal with God. It was something that he created at, and it's not at his level. And, and it was a crafty serpent. And we tend to think of crafty as manipulative or deceptive inherently, right? But in the original language here, it doesn't necessarily mean that. It can just mean wise, or sensible. So at this point, we're not supposed to know whether this is good or evil. It's, we just got to understand that. And here's what the serpent did. He said to the woman, what? Like I, know, like I know we're familiar with this text, but a talking snake is wild, right? Why Why in the world? Like, like How could she not freak out in this moment? Most of us see a snake and we head for the hills. If that snake talked to us, we'd be calling the psych ward to say, I'm coming. Like, I, I, I don't know what's going on here. So why did Eve not turn around and beeline for, for the Lord? Well, you gotta remember, this is before the fall. This is a paradise. The, the, there's no sin. There's no deception. Eve is innocent. She knows nothing of deception or manipulation. And she, she and her husband lived in perfect harmony with God in his direct presence. And so evil was an unknown to her. And the serpent, but 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 what we know is that the serpent speaking shows that this serpent wasn't just an animal; it's not just a snake. It's something otherworldly, supernatural, and threatening. And we come to know that it is in fact Satan himself. Satan, throughout all Scripture, is shown as a serpent or a dragon, uh, and, and and this is the one that approaches Eve. And so the serpent speaks against the only other voice we've heard so far, the Almighty God's. And the second voice creeps in and hints that the Almighty can be questioned. The verse continues, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And what Satan is doing is he's twisting God's word, but also God's motive. Let's start with his word. He references the command that God gave Adam earlier in chapter two, verses 16 and 17. God tells Adam, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. And so actually, God gave Adam all that was in the garden to eat except the fruit of one tree. And and notice the subtlety of the lie here framed like an honest question. Maybe the serpent just didn't know, but there's a hidden agenda here to undercut the word of God. And the serpent does this by focusing on and amplifying the negative part of God's and what Eve can't do rather than the abundance of his gift of giving them everything to eat. And so he's trying to get them to believe something untrue about God and twisting his word to do it. But he's also twisting his motive. It, it, did God actually say this? It, it's like when you hear something shocking or disgusting, maybe it's something about a situation that happens in the world or someone you, you know and you go, did they really say that? They actually did that? I can't believe that. It's this kind of question, why wouldn't, so Satan's going, why wouldn't God let you have all of these good trees? He's subtly sowing the seed of doubt in Eve's mind. But then Eve, in her response, accidentally kind of twists God's word too. Now, it's not in a deceptive way. It's not in an intentional way. It's an accident. Verse two, and the woman said to the serpent, well, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. So she gets this mostly right. But, but, but here's where she's a little bit fuzzy is that she's not focusing on the abundance of God's provision. She doesn't focus on the significance of the tree. She just says, eh, it's that one tree that's over there somewhere, right? She doesn't, she, she's not focusing on, on what the tree represents or why it's, it's a problem. And while she does say, God said, we'll die if we do this. There's not this sense of urgency, this dire emergency going off in her language. And so she unintentionally blurs God's word. She's almost right. And Satan takes advantage of this almost rightness because almost right isn't all right. And it led her into a horrific trap. Here's the deal. Satan is a lot smarter than you. He's lived a lot longer and he's deceived a lot more people than you've dealt with being deceived. So what do you do? (laughs) Know the word of God because the tempter will twist it. And so how do we do this? And and, and listen, this is like, okay, yeah, we know you're banging the same gong. There's a reason. (laughs) Study, read and study God's word diligently because as you understand the word of God, you come to know God. You know his character and his works and his heart towards you and his heart towards people and his hatred of sin and all of these things. You know, by by knowing the word, you know God. So work hard to get it right. To know God rightly. Not a figment of your imagination, not a God of a culture, not a God that you've made up in your own mind, but the God of the scriptures, which is the true and living God. And so, and some of you are like, yeah, and I just, I, I'm, I'm not a good reader. I don't even know how to start. There's all these things you guys keep telling us to do this, but I just, I can't do it. I promise you, you can. It's just hard. Part of it is because your heart doesn't wanna do it. Forget your mind. Like, yeah, sure. But there's all kinds of resources to help you understand the word of God. We even have some here. We've got the equip studies and we've got different Bible studies that are going on. Get yourself in there. And maybe you just need to be quiet and listen and learn. That's fine. That's Okay. You don't have to be, to be a, a, a biblical scholar to come and study the word of God. It's plain. God wants to meet with you through his word, so do it. Another thing I would encourage you to do because Satan is so deceptive is memorize the exact words of the Lord. Memorize it, commit it to your mind. If you got kids in Awana, just do it with them. Take the verses that they're learning and just learn it with them. Memorize the same thing. Something that, that, that I was doing a few years ago is I would just read through a proverb a day and I'd pick one and try to memorize it for, for that day. There's, there's all kinds of ways you can do that. Maybe you're like, well, I don't have kids and the want and all that kind of stuff. There's all kinds of scripture memory resources out there because here's the deal. Knowing God's word is a matter of life and death. So we must know it because the tempter will twist it. But it's not just enough to know it. We must also trust God's word because the tempter will deny it. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. (laughs) How about this? Satan, the father of lies, calls God a liar. Isn't that wild? God is truth. That's his nature. So he's trustworthy and Satan is calling God's trustworthiness into question. Question. And this is how Satan did it then, he does it now. Here's the process of his temptation. He twists God's word and then denies God's word. Anytime there's a twisting of God's word, there's eventually a denial of that word. But notice, and this is how wild he is. He does it so subtly. He says, surely die. Now, why am I pointing that out? That's the exact same wording of the original commandment. Whereas Eve did not use that phrase, surely die. Satan... The deceiver uses that exact phrase because Satan knows the word of God and he will weaponize it against God's people to destroy them. That's how he works. But he doesn't just question God's trustworthiness. He also questions his goodness. Verse five, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God knowing good and evil. So, hey, that thing God said would happen to you, death, that's not gonna happen. In fact, something far better than that's gonna happen. Not only will you not die, you're gonna get something that you don't currently have. And he promises two things, that your eyes will be opened and you'll become like God, knowing good and evil. So Satan boldly states that they are missing something. There's something they don't have. God is withholding something from them, this special knowledge, and he's hiding it. He doesn't want them to see it. They're blind and it's God's fault. Here's what Satan's trying to do. Is he's trying to assassinate the character of God and cross-examine God's goodness. He also promises them that they'll be like God. This is weird, right? What, 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 what does the scripture say when, when man was created? He was made in the what? The image of God. In a sense, there is a like-godness about them already. So what is he meaning here? What is he trying to tempt them with? Freedom, something we all love. Specifically, it's the ability to rule yourself based on your own reason, your own thoughts, whims, and desires. So right now, he's basically saying this. You're relying on God to tell you what's good and evil. But don't you wanna know what that is for yourself? Don't you wanna be able to determine what's good and what's evil, what's right and wrong? And so freedom is good. It's a good thing. God gave Adam and Eve freedom to go and enjoy the garden. And so it's not that, that Eve's desire for this freedom is bad. She's just trying to get it in the worst way. She's being tempted to get it in the worst way. Freedom outside of God's rule and reign. And so all of a sudden, here's what happens to Eve and Adam as we'll see, is the doubt of God's goodness starts to creep into their mind. And for the first time, they start to ask, so is God really good? Does he really have our best interest at heart? Why doesn't he want us to be like him? What's he hiding? And so there's a perspective shift. Instead of seeing good as this life-giving, loving father, no, he's he's, he's a stingy, selfish tyrant. And they start to wonder if his hand of blessing is actually a chokehold on their joy. I wonder how you see God. Which one is it? Do you see him as a loving, giving father or someone that's trying to stop your joy, to control you because he's a self-absorbed, penny-pinching oppressor? Because you may have read this and asking the same questions here. Why doesn't, God want them, why doesn't God want them to have knowledge of good and evil? Doesn't that make sense? It would be good if they knew what evil was, right? So they can, don't, don't do it. But the reason we think this way is due to our own sinful hearts, but also the way that Satan deceives. He makes it all about you. This is exactly what he does to Eve. Watch this. In two, sentence, two sentences, he says you four times. He's going, Eve, this is about you. Why doesn't God want you to have these things, Eve. Aren't you wise enough to figure these things out? And his tricks haven't changed. He does the exact same thing today. He takes the word of God, which is true, and twists it in a way to to, to make you believe that it's all about you. See, you can know the word of God, but know it in a satanic way. And the way you do that is by self-centering the scriptures. Let's just take an example, Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And we see on athletes gear, like on the side of their helmet, like Foots 413, like I can get this touchdown and whatnot because it's through Christ I'm strengthened. I'm gonna, I can do all things through him or, or you're going up for a job promotion and you're just like saying your head, like even though I didn't prepare for this and I'm unqualified, like I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So I'm gonna go in there and get this job, right? Or it's like on social media, like you post a, a new diet that you're gonna do. It's really, really hard. And you're like, y'all pray for me. Like, but I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me but all, and I need, all that's good try to win the game, try to get the job promotion, get healthy, all those things. But the reality of that text is Paul's talking about how he's learned to become content while suffering for the sake of Jesus. He's in jail. And he says, but I can do this because of Jesus. So it's not just enough to know God's word. We have to trust that God's word is true, believe it, embrace it, and exalt it above all other words. Don't ask the serpentine question, did God really say this? Is this really what he means? So you read it, you study it, you memorize it, and then you act like it's true. Because the way that you show that you trust the word of God is that you obey God's word and not your own. Verse six, so when the woman saw that the tree was what? Good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. Eve was deceived. And she trusted the serpent's voice over the voice of her maker. But something that's, that's, that's it's not hidden, it's there, but it's, it's not as blatant is that there's another word that she trusted. Her own, right? She saw the tree was good. Well, that fruit looks good. That fruit over there that I'm allowed to eat looks good. Why, what's wrong with that one? It seems like it'd be fine. Also, I'm gonna, get, I'm gonna be wise for that? Like, okay, why wouldn't I do this? She's, she's trusting herself. Again, she wanted a good thing, wisdom, right? She wanted that freedom, but, she, but, but, but she's trying, but now she's decided that she's gonna attain that wisdom through sin, and that is wickedness. See, she believed she was getting something that God didn't want her to have. God wanted Adam and Eve to have wisdom and freedom. Just that wisdom would come from them over time, trusting him, believing him, and obeying him. So, but Eve thought that God was withholding that, so she trusted out of her own desire for in her own self-interest, interest, and she trusted God, uh, not God, but herself. And this is the word of the world right here. That's it right there. When I was a kid, Disney plastered it all over, like follow your heart, believe in yourself. My goodness, that's how we millennials grew up. You are the center of the world and everything's all about you and you're great and wonderful. All of the desires that you have, go change the world. We changed it, all right. It's insane. (laughs) But this idea of trusting yourself, you, not God, are the ruler of your own life, right? Who should tell you what to do? Me. Why? Because nice, it's good logic. But this is how, this is what we're fed constantly every single day and y'all, it's not new. It's not a new thing. This is the old story. Like first humans right at the gate, the lie that you should be the center of your own universe and you should self-govern and you should rule yourself apart from God's rule and reign and goodness is the original lie. We just find new ways to express it now. Our desires are good. Our plans are good. Our wants are good. You should pursue them no matter what. And no one should tell you to do otherwise. You get to define reality. We literally believe that now. Not Maybe not in the room, but like our culture believes it. we can actually just say reality is not that. If I jump off this building, I'll fly it. No, you won't. It doesn't make any sense. So we're living in a time that celebrates putting my word over God's word. And so we see here that Eve rationalizes her disobedience by her own thoughts, her own wisdom, her own desires, right? It makes sense. And we all do this. Someone frustrates you, so you lash out in anger against them. We all rationalize our disobedience. Yeah, yeah. But, but you know what they did to me? Do you know how badly they hurt me? there's a really twisted way in which I did this many, 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 many years ago. Probably college, maybe very early marriage, I don't know. But reading God's word became a chore to me. It, 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 I, had, I started getting a lot of responsibility. Well, I thought I had a lot of responsibility if it was college. I didn't really, but I thought I did. And so I... I, I and, and like, it just became a thing. I just checked off the list and my heart, quote unquote, wasn't in it. And so I rationalized in my head, God wants my heart. He wants me to, to love him with all my heart, soul and mind. So therefore, if I'm not loving him by doing this thing, engaging with him through his word, then I should probably stop doing that until I desire to do it again. That's so stupid. It doesn't work that way. You don't desire God by neglecting him. That's like saying, I really, really love this person and they're the best and they're the greatest, but I don't ever wanna hear them talk. It doesn't make any sense. And so I was avoiding reading the word and by doing, I rejected God's authority in my life. But Eve isn't the only one who rejects God's authority. Adam does too, continuing in the verse. She also gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ate. I love this. Adam's completely silent. Like he's not even in the picture at all. And then all of a sudden he's, a, he's there. It's like, well, where do you come from? Well, he's there the whole time. He was never not there. So what's he been doing? Just like watching it happen. Just like watching, watching this serpent deceive his wife. And I would argue that his disobedience is greater than Eve's. Eve gets, the, Eve gets a bad rap. I get it. Follow mankind, sinners, of the world. Yeah, big deal. Adam's right there. And he was God's, uh, he, was, he was the one that God gave the command to, to lead, protect, and provide. He was to work the garden and protect the garden and be, and be God's vice king, imaging God in the world, displaying God's goodness and authority. That was his job. So what should have happened is the second that thing came and slithered up next to Eve and started talking, he should have taken his heel and stomped on its foot or if he had a, I don't know, maybe he didn't have a shovel, but just chop its head off right there in that moment. But instead, he just stands there and instead of caring for his wife and God's creation and God's glory and and standing up for God's word, he openly participates in the deception by just taking the apple or whatever it was and eating the fruit that was forbidden. He rejected his responsibility and God's rule and chaos followed. So we must know God's word, but it's not just enough to know it, right? We have to trust God's word. We have to trust God's word. And the way that we display our trust in God's word is that we obey God's word. Look, look, trust and obedience hold hands, okay? I I think sometimes... um, Like we are all about Jesus here. And that's the way we're always gonna be, unapologetically. We are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. That's it, right? It's not what you can do. It's not what I can do. It's not what anyone can do for you other than Jesus. Very grace-saturated place. God loves us. We believe that. But sometimes what we can accidentally do, again, this is the deception of the evil one, is we can start to hear the word obey in a negative way it kind of makes us cringe a little bit. We're like, ooh, obey? Oh, that's legalism. We don't need to obey, right? We need to love God. Well, Jesus himself said, how do you show me you love me? If you love me, you'll keep my commandments, right? So trust and obedience are are, are intertwined with each other. Here's a kind of a, here's an example. So uh, after I got done reading the passage of scripture, I told y'all to sit down what'd you do? You sat down. Why? Because I told you to? No, actually, no. It's because you trusted the chair. The chair. You trusted that the chair would hold you up, and so you just went down without even thinking about it. Nobody was like, "No, no, no, maybe." You just sat down because that chair has held you up every single day you've been here since you started coming. Right? That's the you trusted the chair, so you sat down the chair. That's the way trust and obedience. Work when, we, when we're talking about obeying God's word. Obedience is good. It's not a curse word. Let's not act like it. So we need to obey the word that God has said. So that means what? We just got to buckle down harder, right? Just try harder, really grit and get in there. Work harder to make up for all the wrong that we've done. Well, that's what exactly what Adam and Eve tried to do is we're about to see. And we'll find that trying to cover our sin is absolute vanity. It does not work. So we must know the word of God, trust the word of God, obey the word of God. And and the way we do that is by following the word made flesh and not what our flesh can do. Follow the word made flesh and not what your flesh can do. Look with me in verse seven. So after they eat the apple, the fruit, then the eyes of both were opened and they knew they were naked. Satan's lie came true. How does that work? How does a lie become true? Well, he told them their eyes would be opened. And they were. But he didn't tell them what that meant. Their eyes were opened to their nakedness. They got exactly what they wanted, knowledge of good and evil. And what they learned is that they had chosen evil. Back in chapter two, verse 25, it says that, Adam and Eve were brought together and they were there naked and not ashamed. They were fully open, fully known by each other and by God himself. In a perfect relationship, there was nothing to hide. There were no lies, no deception, no manipulation, no awkwardness, no embarrassment. But now there's a rift in their relationship They know they've done wrong and their nakedness is exposed and shame erupts in their hearts. And that's what sin does. So what do they do? They cover themselves. Don't look at me. I want you to think about this moment. Adam and Eve living in perfect harmony with God. And when Adam saw Eve for the first time, he said, finally, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She's everything that I've, that, that I've been waiting for, that I wanted, that I didn't even know I needed. But look at her. And he praises her. And now he's like, get away from me. Can you imagine that pain? Right in that moment? As Pastor Jamie said last week, the crown jewel of creation. And Adam goes, "Mmm, disgusting. And he feels it in his own. Eve looks at him and feels the same way. She looks at him and go, how dare you? And they both feel shame for what they have done. And so they try to, to hide their own guilt. You ever had this moment where you sin and you're like, I hope no one sees me today, right? You lose your temper on somebody and like a, maybe it's in your family. Maybe it's, it's, it's at a, I don't know, a place of a business or something like that. You just get frustrated and you lose it. And you're like, I don't wanna see that person again for a long time. Cause you're so embarrassed, you're shamed. Someone gets on your phone and you're like, oh my gosh, please give me that back right now. I don't want you to dig through that. You just wanna crawl under the concrete. Or maybe you're like graduating, you're getting into the professional world and you're like, I gotta delete a lot of photos from that Instagram. Because you don't wanna be seen. See, this is the bad side of the story that Satan doesn't want you to know. (laughs) It's the same story he tries to hide from you today. Sin always promises freedom and always produces shame. So the lie is if you follow your desires, you'll have freedom. The reality is that that leads to slavery. Like a, it's like an addict. Like we, you, The first hit, if you will, I know it's an aggressive analogy, feels awesome. But then you need more and you need more and you need more and before you know it you're you are a shell of what you were before and that sin has just consumed you and you are enslaved to it. You cannot escape it it's taken over your life and it destroys everything this is the moment when the entire cosmos changed When when, when Adam and Eve grabbed that fruit and disobeyed God, the very fabric of our universe changed in that moment as sin entered into the world. And this is why everything's a mess. This is why last October, a bunch of guys went in and tortured and murdered innocent civilians. This is why we have corrupt leaders and politicians. This is why this is why we get in fights with each other. This is why divorce happens. This is why adultery happens. This is why even in your own heart, you know who you are deep down is not good. This is the moment. This is the reason why the world is so insane. Really? Because they ate a fruit? No. It's because they rejected God's rule and authority. See, because of sin, we like to believe that sin is no big deal, that we can play games with it, that we can, that we can manage it. And so we treat temptation with kid gloves. You get tempted, you're like, that's yeah, no big deal. I can handle this. And the reason we think that is because we believe God is small. He's not holy. He's not righteous. He's not gonna judge, really. I've been sinning for a long time. He hasn't done anything yet. And if your God is small, your sin is gonna be small. But if you understand God as he is, sin is horrifying. Some of us don't really care that much about resisting temptation because we don't think it's a big deal. We don't think sin is a big deal. We actually, we live in a time where sin is considered an ancient delusion that there's not really sin, right? There's just better living and then maybe some, some bad decisions because it doesn't benefit you in the long run so self-centered way we think about things. Or if we're in the church, we, we can put a nice religious spin on it. I mean, the Lord is gracious and forgiving. He'll forgive me of this. So it's not really that big of a deal, right? But sin brings shame and destruction and dysfunction and death into the world because it's the rejection of God's rule, the result of the belief that God is not who he says he is, that he's not good, but evil. When you intentionally sin, you're saying God is evil. So, brothers and sisters, we must wage war with sin. So, how do we do this? Well, we follow the word made flesh and not what our flesh can do. Look at me in verse seven. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So they tried to fix their problem on their own. They were naked because, which, which, which means they were fully exposed to each other. They were ashamed, embarrassed. They couldn't handle the fact that they had just done what they had done. Their eyes were open to it. And so their solution is to grab some leaves and go, that'll work. They tried to cover themselves. And by their hands, they made this mess. So now they're going to try to fix it in the same way. And they thought it was good enough, but it's not. And this is what the sin of self righteousness does you reject God's authority, then you go, well, I'm gonna fix this on my own. But the reality of the situation of our sin isn't that we can fix it because we can't. You know this if you've tried, if you've tried to quote unquote be a better person and so you work and you work and you work, but then you still have those same desires. You still have those same issues that you've wrestled with since, since, since you were 10 years old you can't shake it. It's it's like having mold-infested, rotten walls that need to be ripped down, everything completely demolished and rebuilt. But instead of doing that, you just slap a new coat of paint on it. It's like having a mortal bullet, like a wound, like a bullet hole in you and being like, Band-Aid. It doesn't work. It covers the problem, but it does not fix it. See, because the issue isn't that they're naked. They've always been naked. The issue is that they know that they're naked. They disregarded God's clear command. They've rebelled against him and it's changed them forever. And because of that, we, you and I, in the same way we've inherited our parents' genes, physical features, we've inherited Adam's sinful nature. So what's our hope? The good news is that God's command, his word, God's word is not just a command; it's a person, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. During our responsive reading, we read about Jesus, or we we, we read Jesus's uh, encounter with the tempter, Satan, in the wilderness. He was weak, physically frail, fasting for forty days, and Satan comes up to him at the end of that forty days and tempts him in all kinds of ways: temporary glory, physical needs proving that he is who he says he is. And what does Jesus do? Instead of going with his own desires, he desires to please the father most of all. Instead of going for something he needed, bread, he says, no, 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 no. I have food you don't know about, (laughs) pleasing my father. Instead of being tempted to bow down before Satan and get all the earthly glory, he goes, no, 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 I have glory, the glory of the cross and the resurrection, and I'll be exalted to the right hand of the Father. He went into the wilderness and faced the tempter head on, and he won. Where Adam stood beside his bride, Jesus steps in front of his bride and breaks the teeth of the serpent's bite. He resisted temptation for you. I promise you, I do not care how disciplined you are. I don't care how self-controlled you are in and of yourself and your flesh, your effort. You are not capable of resisting temptation apart from the work of Jesus in your life. You're not, it's not possible. So if that's what you're relying on, you are standing on shifting sand that the waves are constantly blowing over. You can stand there for a minute, but eventually you're gonna sink. Now, for the Christian, it doesn't mean that you just don't resist temptation. It just means that you now have the power to resist temptation, right? How, How does this work, right? Because of, here's the deal. Because of Adam's sin, we sin. But Jesus paid for that sin on the cross. The son of God took on human flesh and had that flesh ripped from his body taking the punishment that you and I deserve on himself. The innocent died for the guilty. So here's what happens. When you trust him, when you trust him to save you from your sin, your heart of stone that has no capacity to resist temptation, the desires to sin is replaced with a heart of flesh, a heart that desires to please and obey God. God transforms your heart that can't obey him into one that longs to obey him. So you trust Christ. And the way you do that is you obey him. The only way to be able to obey him is to know him through his word. I said it before, I'll say it again. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And so our solution to our temptation problem is through the one who resisted temptation for us, you trust completely in him to do it for you. And he'll come and help. And here's the thing. In Christ, you have everything you could possibly need, not just just to resist temptation, but joy, fullness of joy. Since you have everything Christ has in the heavenly places, you've been blessed with that. So if God's given you everything in in Christ, why on earth do we consistently take the fruit? Make Jesus your center. So my friend's advice all those years ago was not helpful. It led to confusion and, and, and an argument and frustration because I placed a higher priority on his word than the word I promised to my future bride. And I learned that not all words are equal. So I wonder what you're listening to most now. Whose word are you listening to the most? Is it God's or the deceivers? Because look, there's a powerful tempter in the wilderness all around us. Peter tells us that he is our adversary who prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Satan wants to kill you. And so he tempts you to kill you. So the way you kill Sin, the way you you, you resist temptation isn't by a weapon you wield by your own hands. You kill the threat of temptation by trusting the word that God has spoken while he was hanging on a cross. It is finished. You are free from your sin. You believe the word of God over the word of the flesh. You trust the Lord rather than your own logic and reason. Jesus endured the temptation of the serpent so you can have victory over the serpent's lies. And if you trust him, his victory is your victory because the heel that crushed the serpent's head was pierced for you. Trust and obey him today. So we know the word, we trust the word, we obey the word by following the word made flesh.